welcome to episode 30 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini, and on this episode, we are privileged to speak with Michigan Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein. This past November of 2014, Richard Bernstein made history by becoming the first blind attorney to be elected as a justice to the Michigan State Supreme Court, or as he likes to say, blind justice is now on the Michigan Supreme Court. Now, this is just the most recent history-making move for Justice Bernstein. He was born blind and has worked his entire life to succeed far beyond any boundary that anyone could have ever imagined for a blind or disabled person. And as you'll hear in our conversation, he hasn't stopped in any way in his efforts to both challenge himself and challenge the perception of blind people and anyone with disabilities. We started off by talking about the fight that he had to take in order just to be admitted to law school and the test that was given by the Law School Admissions Council. The basis of Justice Bernstein's case was that the admissions test for law school is visually biased because of its use of charts and graphs in questions, which are very hard for blind and visually impaired people to utilize. I asked the Justice to talk about how challenging education is for people who are blind and visually impaired. Well, I I think there's a degree of challenges in the sense that, you know, I think standardized testing is just kind of one example of the various difficulties that people with disabilities tend to face. But I think what you really look at when you're looking at the educational system is is that ultimately, you know, there are so many people that have so many different kind of challenges as they approach education. And I think what it really comes down to is is, is that people that that have these, these difficult issues and challenges, if we're given an opportunity, if we're given a chance, we really have the chance to thrive. You know, I'm just going to give you a statistic that I think is a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. 85% of the blind community is currently unemployed. Wow. I think that's a pretty staggering, yes, staggering number. Now, that's not because blind people aren't talented. It's not because blind people aren't hardworking. It's not because blind people aren't passionate and energetic and incredibly competent and capable. It really comes down to a socioeconomic discussion that I think is really at play. And the reason that I love doing this interview with you and the reason that I'm so passionate about this work is because if I wasn't born into the family that I was born into, where I was so blessed to have resources and opportunities and I was given the absolute best of everything, but if I hadn't been born into an affluent family, what I would honestly tell you is that there's no question that I would be part of the 85% of the unemployment rate because there's really no difference between myself and any other person with a disability or any other blind person. It just so happened that I was very fortunate and very blessed and very lucky to have been born into a family that had the financial resources to provide the best educational opportunities possible. So I think when you ask the question, you know, what are the biggest challenges, you know, that are currently impacting people with disabilities, I would really venture to say that it's primarily socioeconomic. And I think that when you look at this, it's important to always argue and important to always illustrate the fact that no one blind person speaks for all blind people or any other blind person for that matter. No one disabled person speaks for other disabled people. Everyone has their unique story. Everyone has their unique experience. Everyone has kind of the life experiences that make them who they are. So what always concerns me is that whenever I do an interview and people say, oh, you know, it's it's great, you're blind, and yet you are able to become a Supreme Court justice, I'm always very cautious about that 
because I think we always have to be mindful of the fact that it comes down to each individual story, each individual experience, and each individual's opportunity that they've been given. So I think that when you look at these situations, you know, it really comes down to, you know, what the opportunities are that you're, that you're presenting. And when you look at it from a socioeconomic perspective, it's just exacerbated more by the disability. But having said that, and I don't want to give you too long an answer, but having said that, I did want to address the issue with the LSAT because I do think that is a critical issue. And I think one of the biggest challenges in education that affects people with disabilities, and I think it's fair to say that it affects people with all different types of disabilities, whether it's blindness, whether it's a learning disability, whatever it might be, I think everyone is impacted in the same nature by the overuse of standardized testing. And when you ask the question, you were referring to what is called the logical game section of the LSAT. And anyone that wants to go to law school is required to take the LSAT. It is important to point out, however, the LSAT is not the bar exam. Bar exam is a completely separate entity, and no one really objects to the bar exam. The bar exam is a knowledge-based exam. You either know the material or you don't. So because of the fact that the bar is knowledge-based, like I say, you're either prepared or you're not, no one objects to that. But the LSAT is a whole different thing. And I think that you also find the same factors in the SAT as well. But just focusing on the LSAT, there's an entire section called logical game. Now, let me give you an example of a logical game. Now, if you want to go to law school, again, this is what you would take to try to go to law school. And the whole reason they use the LSAT is for U.S. News and World Report ranking. And so law schools are required by the American Bar Association to administer the LSAT as a requirement for admission. So if you want to go to law school and you want to go to an accredited law school, the ABA is going to require that all applicants to law school take the LSAT, even though the LSAT is completely discriminatory towards those people who have visual impairment. And let me give you just a quick example. Here would be a typical question on the logical game section of the LSAT. A, B, C, D, and E are seated next to each other at a restaurant. If A moves next to C and B moves next to D, where is E in relation to A? It actually says on the exam that you are required to diagram in the space provided in order to answer the question. So it actually requires you in the space provided to draw a diagram in order to solve the in order to solve the question. And I think the reason that this is so problematic is primarily for the fact that there is no accommodation that you could give on this exam that's going to make it equitable. If you give the exam in Braille, it's not going to matter because you have to draw a picture and diagram. If you give unlimited time, it's not going to matter. You have to draw a picture and a diagram. If you give the exam on tape, it's not going to matter because you have to draw a picture and a diagram. So what I think happens with standardized testing as it pertains to people with disabilities, especially blindness, is that you have to look to the intrinsic nature and structure of the exam itself to determine if the exam by its nature is able to even be accommodated for. And I would argue, and there was a great law review that was just published on our case um, by the University of Illinois um, Law School, 
that basically talked about the idea in the Larvae article that the University of Illinois uh, recently put out, it actually talked about this idea that, you know, there are certain exams that simply can't be accommodated for. And I think we have to look at that as we look at the educational system and have a better understanding and appreciation that you can't just put something in Braille or put something on tape or give more time to provide an accommodation. You have to look at the structural systemic makeup of the exam in and of itself. And it's a shame that that kind of exam is keeping people with disabilities from having the chance to go to law school, which I would argue in turn is affecting the level of civil rights that we're going to have because if you don't have a lot of disabled attorneys, you're not going to have the high level and order of civil rights that we need to have. Right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about um, you know the way blind people are typically thought of in the media or in uh, the world in general. Because when they're depicted in movies or television, they're always shown using Braille as the method to read. But according to the most recent statistics from the American Printing House for the Blind, only nine percent of blind students under the age of twenty-one are actually using Braille. Twenty-seven percent are visual readers. Uh, to whatever extent they're capable. 8% are auditory readers, 21% are pre-readers, which is elementary school aged, even though they're much older. And then the most, uh, the highest number of all, which is really eye-opening, 34% are non-readers. Complete, they just don't read at all. So can you talk about the problems with reading literacy for the blind and the visually impaired people? Because I think that really also goes with what you're saying about the, uh, the LSAT case and all the other admissions problems. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what, what happens in the situation, and, and that statistic sounds about right, and I think it's a, a very interesting statistic, but I think you have to find hope in that statistic. And the reason I share that with you is because it's a new day, and mm-hmm. it's a new generation. I think what is happening is, is that the vast majority of people with visual impairments tend to rely more on technology. And I think technology has become you know, for all intents and purposes, really the great equalizer. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny because, you know, people will ask, you know, when I was in law school, you know, did you use Braille? And the answer is no, because if I give you one textbook page, you're going to give me 50 Braille pages. So as a result, there's a, a tremendous inefficiency that comes with having to rely on Braille in comparison to using other techniques. So I think what you're tending to find kind of in that statistic is, you know, a heavier reliance on technology. And I think technology, again, creates a tremendous level of efficiency, creates a tremendous level of energy. And I think technology has really helped to kind of equal the playing field. So I think when you look at it, it's quite interesting. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was first born in 1973, expectations were very different. I'll always remember when uh, my mom tells me the story that our rabbi came to visit her, you know, within a week after I was born, and my mom had learned that, you know, she had given birth to a severely disabled child, you know, a person who was going to be blind. And, you know, she was, you know, thinking, what's his life going to be like? You know, what's his future going to be like? You know, what is what, what does he have to look forward to? What's going to wind up happening? And I remember that, you know, our rabbi came and visited with my mom, and my mom always shares the story, and he said, the one promise I can make to you, Susan, is that your son will have a bar mitzvah. And that was, a, that was just such a significant thing for the rabbi to share with my mom. The, the key to this is, is that this is when expectations were different. 
this is when people didn't realize what could happen and what was available. So I think when you look at this, this issue, I think the fact that you have people moving away from Braille is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it can be a good thing because it means that people are starting to use other forms of technology that can be more efficient, that can be, you know, a little bit more, in those situations, be more cost-effective, but also will provide them with opportunities that Braille wouldn't be able to do. Having said that, I think it is absolutely critical that everyone who is visual, visually impaired or blind has to learn Braille, you know, when they're growing up. I mean, I'm a Braille user and a Braille reader, and I learned Braille when I was young. I mean, that's just a standard thing because you, you have to know how to read and write. I think that is a basic foundational thing that everyone has to be able to do. So I think that what's important is, is that there's no question that kind of in the early learning phase, everyone needs to know how to read and write. And Braille for someone like me is going to be your best mechanism in order to do that. However, after having learned the basics, and again, after having learned how to read and how to write and using Braille to kind of allow for that format to take place, I think the best thing that can then happen is to start looking into other means of technology and other options that exist that can allow for people who are blind or visually impaired to be highly effective and highly competitive, both educationally and in the workforce. So you got to start with the basics, but then you have to you really grasp and you have to enjoy technology and allow for that to help you as it moves forward. And if you grow with it, it will create unlimited opportunities. And I think that as the story I was sharing with you in the beginning of our conversation goes to illustrate, as technology grows, so too does the level of opportunity and experiences that await us. So we're living in a world without boundaries, and we're living in a world without limits. And the more that people take advantage of that, the greater their opportunities and the greater their life is ultimately going to be. That's wonderful. Now, um, I'm a bit older than you are. I was born in 1957. And uh, when I was younger, the blind children and the visually impaired children were usually put into a specialized school for the blind rather than putting them into general education. But now the trend has been to put uh, visually impaired and blind students in with general education. Do you think that's a good move, or is there something to be gained by giving specialized instruction in a different school setting? Well, I think that's a complicated issue. And going back to the way that I was educated, you know, I was in public school in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, Mm -hmm. and I spent, you know, pretty much the vast majority of my day in the Learning Resource Center. So I was spending the vast majority of my day kind of within the confines of special ed. Now, I would have the opportunity at certain points of the day to attend general classrooms, but I would have a parapro. So I would, you know, I wouldn't go by myself. I would have a parapro that would come from the Learning Resource Center and accompany me into whatever general class I was going to go to. So if I was going to be in an English class or, you know, a science class or a math class, it would be with the kind of accompaniment of a parapro who would kind of help you find where you're going and make sure that you got situated and would assist you kind of when you're in the general classroom. So I think what happens is, is that, yes, I mean, ultimately, what is our goal? Our goal is to have inclusion. 
I mean, that really is what it really comes down to. You want people to be included. You want people to be a part of the community. You want people to be a part of society. So where does that start? That usually starts within the, you know, educational confines and structure of secondary education. However, I think what is important is that if you're going to move towards mainstreaming and you want to kind of make that your overall goal and your overall kind of ambition, which I think is a very noble and appropriate one, you have to make sure that you have the resources necessary to provide for success. So you can't just mainstream, and this is, this is where I sometimes get concerned, which is sometimes when you use the word mainstreaming, that can be a code word for diminishing of services. So I think what we have to always emphasize is that if you choose to mainstream and mainstream is the direction that you want to go, that's totally fine. And I think if the IEP, the you know, individual education plan, kind of reflects that your goal is to kind of create a more kind of uh, mainstream environment, I think that's a great thing. But you just have to ensure that you have the level necessary and scope of support services that will accompany the mainstream activity to allow for success. So you don't want to have people with disabilities who would require a parapro to be in a mainstream environment without that parapro. So as long as you combine the two and you make sure that you're, you're, you're striving for success in that you're not limiting the resources, but that you're using the resources necessary to allow for success in the mainstream environment, I think that's always a goal that we should strive for. The special education and advocacy, of course, for disabled have been two very important subjects for you, and you've taken up a lot of causes, not just for blind people, but for all students with special needs. How do you feel things are going with special education? Have they improved, or do you feel there there still needs to be more work to be done? Oh, boy. I think that's a really great question. I think that special ed will rise and fall with our support of public education. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, when you look at it, it really comes down to, I mean, Special ed, for all intents and purposes, is really kind of an extension or really an exacerbation of the programs and services that are required by public schools. So really what it comes down to is, is that in order for special ed services to grow and become better, you have to invest more in public education. It's just that simple. So the stronger that the public educational system is, the stronger your special ed services are. Conversely, If you don't invest in public education, if you don't invest in public schools, then the the, the opposite is going to happen. You're going to have weaker special ed programs and services. I think what is important for folks to always know is is that, you know, when when we can get into this, it's a very complicated issue, but I think what is very important for folks to know is, you know, people like myself, someone who is blind like me, I would not have the option of going to a private school. I mean, you know, that's not an option because a private school is under no circumstance or requirement obligated to take someone like myself. So really, you know, for all intents and purposes, when you are dealing with people with disabilities and special needs, the only outlet that we have to receive education are public schools. We don't have other options. I don't get the option of being able to say, well, I would like to go to a private school because a private school isn't going to take somebody like myself. And that also gets into the entire discussion with charter schools as well. I mean, we can get into that entire conversation too, which is when you look at charter schools, 
you know, that is a huge problematic area for people with disabilities. And I think that ultimately, you know, when you ask the question as it pertains to kind of where things stand as it pertains to special education, the way I would basically answer that question is to simply say that, you know, it really comes down to the strength of public education. And we're not, and again, all these things that are happening, vouchers and charter schools and all these types of issues that are kind of coming onto the forefront, all of these things basically take away from public education. When you take away from public education, you are taking away from special education. When you take away from special education, you are making it far more difficult for people like myself and the countless numbers of people. I believe the last statistic that I heard, and um, I believe this came from the Department of Education from the state, but I believe the last statistic that I had was there's well over, I believe there's well over 200,000 students who currently receive special education services from the state of Michigan. And it's a pretty astonishing number if people want to look at that again. And, I, and I'm pretty certain of this statistic, but coming from the State Department of Education, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, and again, you'll have to verify it, but my, my understanding is that it's well over 200,000 students receive some form of special education service from the state of Michigan. So we're not talking about a small subset of people. We're talking about a very sizable number of people. So I would simply say that, you know, this entire discussion is really wrapped up in the overall conversation that we're having about the state of public schools and public education within our state. Well, let's go into the budget issue, too. Um, You know, in Michigan and around the United States, we hear about school districts and even state boards of education making cuts to special education through either cutting uh, teaching assistants or parapros or intervention programs. How do you feel um, that that is, uh, you know, well, obviously, I can tell you're probably against that sort of thing, but what would you say to that type of situation? Well, I would say, look, without getting into kind of any legal issues that can arise you know, from that kind of conversation, looking at it from more of a moral perspective and looking at it from a kind of a heightened kind of moral kind of ideology, you know, I would simply say that, you know, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is, you know, this is a a basic fundamental component of government. And this is basically something that is absolutely critical. I mean, this is, this is anything and everything is found in the educational process. And so when you're looking at a situation where, I mean, it's just, I'm so blessed to have had the opportunity to have gotten such an incredible public education. I mean, I'm just so blessed to have had that chance. And it was through my public education, I'm getting the opportunity to do the things that I get to today. And then I'm hopefully having a chance to make a difference and hopefully having a chance to impact people in a positive way. And that is just an incredible blessing. That that's just an incredible thing. But I would say that, like you know, when you when you cut programs and services that are so desperately needed by people, what you're really doing is you're cutting their future, you're cutting their hope, you're cutting their opportunity, you're cutting their ability to be a part of our community and to be a part of our society. And I would just say, you know, taking it one step further, I know you had a chance to uh, interview the lieutenant governor and. One of the things that we're working on together, and it's just been such an incredible program, and it's had such an amazing mission, and it's had such a wondrous impact and effect on the lives of so many different people, is our number one focus is we're trying to allow for people with disabilities, 
regardless of the disability, whether it's a physical disability or a cognitive disability, we want people to have the chance to find employment. We want people to have the chance to find work because when you give someone a job, you're giving them a life. You're giving them an opportunity. You're giving them a future. You're giving them something grand and noble, and you're giving them something exciting to look forward to. And I think that when we look at this, there are so many people that have so many talents, but I think so often we tend to look at it from the perspective that, wow, you know, if we do this, we're just helping disabled people. So if we provide parapros or we provide special education services, if we provide accommodations at the workplace, wow, this is great because, you know, we're helping people with disabilities. What people have to realize is this is not charity. What's really happening is that when you have people with disabilities who are in your school, when you have people with disabilities who are in your community, when you have people with disabilities who are at your job, who are at your workplace, what happens is that often is the case that it makes it better for everybody. It makes it better for all participants. So whenever you modify something, whether it's a school or whether it's an employment opportunity, whenever you make a modification, whenever you make an accommodation, you're not just making that accommodation for somebody with a disability. The accommodation that's being put into place is going to make it better for absolutely everyone. And there are countless examples of literally when companies have hired disabled people and have made, you know, simple accommodations, just simple accommodations to allow for them to work, it made the entire operation, it made the entire environment, it made the entire company better, not just for the disabled person, but for everyone. And I think that's the mindset and the attitude that we always have to bring to bear, whether it's education or whether it's employment, that investing in people with disabilities is an investment in all people and makes life better for everyone. If you improve something for a disabled person, by far what you're really doing is you're making the situation and you're making the circumstance better for everyone. That's absolutely wonderful. Well, let's take a moment to talk about access for people with physical disabilities because that can always be a huge challenge. Now, you've successfully argued cases to improve access for physically disabled citizens and students against municipalities. Now, according to the most recent census, one in five persons has a disability of some sort. Do you think that people are becoming more aware of the need for better access, or is there still some ignorance about this issue? Oh, I think it's only getting better. Oh, good. I, I think... Now, look, there's no question that there will always be work to do. I mean, there's no question that there will always be a struggle. But I think, you know, the fact that we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the American Disabilities Act, I mean, this is truly a time for celebration. This is a time to reflect on just how far we have come and just how far we have, have, have really reached. And I think also this is really a time for us to truly celebrate the fact that we live in the United States. Because even though there are challenges that await us, and there will always be challenges that, you know, we have to look forward to, at the end of the day, the United States has done more for people with disabilities than any other country in the world. And I think that that is something that we just have to really take pride in. Because you have to sometimes look back at what's been accomplished and what's been achieved to really recognize what we've been able to do. I mean, just think of it this way. If you were to look back to 50 years, people like myself and, you know, other folks who have severe disabilities would have been institutionalized. And the idea was that we would have been out of sight 
and out of mind, and the focus would have been on keeping us away from the community. And now it's incredible. I mean, think about it. People with disabilities are everywhere. People with disabilities are riding on buses. They're riding on trains. People with disabilities are flying on airplanes. People with disabilities are attending school. People with disabilities are at university. People with disabilities are working. I mean, what's incredible about how far we have come is, is that certain things that at one time used to be extraordinary have now become ordinary. If you see a disabled person on a bus or a plane, you don't even think anything of it. And that's the beauty of just how far we've come, that things that at one time we would look at and say, this is a truly extraordinary, monumental thing, has now become ordinary. And that's the sign of the success of any movement, when you're able to kind of take it for granted and not recognize just how significant and impactful it actually is to have a wheelchair user get on and off a city bus. That's when you know how far we have reached and how far we have come. And what I will tell you is that in every case that I had the chance to work on before assuming the Supreme Court justice position, what you would always find is that in the beginning, there would usually be a fight. So when I was fighting with the University of Michigan, we would always start off, there would always be a battle, there would always be a fight, it would always start off with that. There would always be, you know, some kind of a, you know, as usual in litigation, there would be a usual battle that you would have to kind of engage with at the kind of the beginning of it. But then usually what happened was that whether it was an airline, whether it was a university, whether it was a city, what would often happen was something quite remarkable was that companies or government would come to realize that, you know what, the changes that are being sought the changes that are being asked for, these are modest requests. We can do this. We can make this happen. This isn't going to be that difficult. This isn't going to be that much of a hardship. And this is something that we could do and that we can do this well and that we can do it without a problem. And I think what's great is is, is that I can tell you whether it was with the airline industry that we had to fight with or the University of Michigan, that when they made the modifications to become accessible so that people with disabilities could be a part of the stadium or could fly on the airplane, what they tended to find was that the experience was made better for everyone, that the experience was enhanced for all of the consumers, and that the best practices that were put in place to allow for people with disabilities the opportunity to participate were incredibly effective in increasing the overall experience that everybody was having. So University of Michigan found that by making their stadium accessible, that it made it a much better environment for senior citizens and that it made it a much better, easier place for people to use for other events like commencement or other types of things. And it was just a great thing when they came to realize that, well, wait a minute, we can make this accessible, we can do this. And they came to realize, that, oh, my God, by making it accessible, we can benefit everybody. And so I think what tends to happen in every one of the cases I used to work on was that once people understood what you were asking for and why you were asking for it, and they came to realize that it was effective and practical and doable, people usually got excited about it, usually were enthused about it, and did everything they could to, you know, make it accessible. And they found that by doing that, 
they literally made it better for everybody. Well, and going along with that, you know, and the way things were and how things have been improving, what are your hopes for disability rights and special education rights for the future? Well, I think, again, as we mark the 25th anniversary of the American Disabilities Act, I think, again, this is really our time for celebration. And this is really our time to reflect on just how great things have become because we're moving forward into new areas, we're moving forward into new venues, but I think that as it pertains to where we're at, we're doing pretty well. I think the next big areas that, you know, I think are going to um, be things that we're going to be focusing on is technology, because I think technology is, is really the next thing. We've, we have focused intensely on brick and mortar, which is critical because you need for people to be a part of the community. You need for people to have that ability to participate. So you have to address areas of public transit. You have to address areas of education. You have to address areas of physical construction. And I think that those are things that are being addressed. I mean, is it perfect? By no means. But is it getting better? Absolutely. Does it continue to get better? Most definitely. So I think a lot of the next area that we have to run, like really kind of keep focusing on is making sure that technology is going to be available for all users and for all people. So making sure that, like, you know, as we start to kind of move forward kind of into the technological area and and as, as we start relying more on computers and as we start relying on new types of software, you know, we have to try to make sure that that software is accessible, that that software can be used by everyone. You know, it's interesting, just to, you know, kind of give you an example, I was at, um, uh, just recently, you know, I was in Washington, D.C., and I had the opportunity to spend some time talking with a software designer who was working for the federal government and, you know, implementing software for literally the, you know, entire country. And he made an amazing comment, and I thought it was such a wonderful thing that he said this. He said, what usually happens in technology is, is that, you know, you'll design the software, you'll design the program, and then after you've designed it, you basically go back and say, okay, now let's see if we can make it accessible. So once you've actually designed the software, then you go back and you say, okay, now let's kind of adapt it so that everybody can use it. What was exciting about what he was saying was that at the federal government level, they're trying to look at it differently. They're trying to address accessibility first, and that by addressing accessibility first, they weave the rest of the software around the accessibility, and that by doing that, it really makes it easier to use and easier to navigate. So I think that's kind of the, the areas that, you know, we really need to look at, which is, you know, as we move forward with technology, when you're talking about accessibility of technology, it shouldn't just be an afterthought. It shouldn't just be, okay, we've designed this great program, now let's make it accessible for screen users. Let's figure out how to do that in the beginning, make the technology accessible to start, and then build the program around that. And I think if we can kind of develop that kind of conceptual thinking, I think that we could really move this discussion along. But I would just end, you know, answer the question by simply saying that that's the next frontier, you know, that we've addressed bricks and mortar, we've addressed physical limitations. Those are things that we're currently working on, and those are critical elements because no one should ever be alone, nobody should ever be isolated, and no one should ever have that feeling of not being able to go into a, a public building. 
But at the same time, I think as we start looking towards the future, we start looking to making sure that software, computers, and technology, we think accessibility first, which isn't just going to make it better for a disabled user, it's going to make it better for all users. And I think that that's something everyone loves, you know, screen readers. Everyone loves the kind of technology that is now being used that talks to you and communicates with you. So I think we just have to look at it as a natural growth process that is really working well for all people. That's fantastic. Now, you've worked hard throughout your entire life to succeed far beyond your disabilities limitations. What advice do you have for parents of special needs children who are advocating for their children to get through school and into their careers? That's a wonderful question. And I I would really answer that question by using an athletic analogy. Because I think that athletics really represents life. And it represents life at its core, and it represents life at its essence. Now, I've been blessed. I've had the chance to complete 18 marathons, and I've also been blessed to have had the opportunity to complete a full Ironman competition, which, you know, for those that aren't familiar, it's a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and a 26.2-mile run. And you do it all consecutively. It takes about two years of work and training in order to fulfill such a competition. The advice that I would give to parents that are working now with their children with disabilities is that you have to take it the way an athlete trains for an event. You have to take it one step at a time and one day at a time. And the reason that I share this athletic analogy with you is that when I first got into athletic competition, I never imagined I was going to run a marathon. I mean, that was something that was so far from reach that if they had told me the first day I went to Achilles that I would be doing a marathon, I don't think I would have returned the next day. I think I would have left. But that's not how they did it. They basically said, let's do a mile. As a blind person running for the first time, that was a really terrifying experience, running in the dark in Central Park. But we did one mile. And then the next day, they said, let's come back. And the next week I returned. And then we did two miles, and then we did five miles, and then we did 10 miles, and we did 15 miles, and we eventually got up to 20 miles. And then Dick Trom, the founder of Achilles, came to me and he said, Richard, you know, I, I really want to highly urge you to do the New York City Marathon. Then I said, you know, Dick, what are you talking about, the New York City Marathon? And he said, well, you trained without training. You know, you, you built your way up. You're ready for this marathon. And so then we did it. We went and ran the New York City Marathon. And I did one marathon and, you know, decided to come back and do another marathon. And then I did five marathons and then 10 marathons and 15 marathons. And then they basically said, okay, you know what? You've kind of gotten to a situation now where, you know, it's time for you to consider doing an Ironman. So then we started doing and we did our work and we went out and did the Ironman. And then I will share with you a story where I was in Central Park uh, about two years ago, was walking in the pedestrian lane, and a bicyclist was traveling at a speed of an excess of 35 miles an hour, veered into the pedestrian lane, and struck me directly in my back. And it was a catastrophic injury. I had to live at Mount Sinai Hospital for over 10 weeks, and I literally had to start all over again. I couldn't do those simple things. I couldn't take a shower or go to the bathroom. Nurses would have to reposition me every five to ten minutes because I couldn't do it myself. 
And ultimately what wound up happening was, you know, you, you start over again and you start rebuilding and you start celebrating those little victories. You start celebrating those small things. Like I remember celebrating the fact that, you know, I could finally move my leg. I celebrated the fact that I could finally start using a walker. I celebrated the fact that I could make it to the end of my room. I celebrated the fact that I could make it to the nurse's station. And it's those small victories. And I think anybody that has a special needs child or a disability themselves realizes that. You, you celebrate those small victories. You celebrate those small accomplishments. You celebrate those small achievements, you know, that you're able to do. And then you start building on them. And you start working with them. And I remember it was about uh, a year ago, and it was time for the New York City Marathon. And it wasn't going to be the kind of marathon I used to do. There wasn't going to be any PRs that were going to be broken. But it was a marathon nonetheless. And I remember doing this on a, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was still working hard trying to recover from a horrible injury. And I remember, you know, doing this marathon on a shattered hip and crushed pelvis. And the pain was so significant that when we got to mile 18 and started running up First Avenue, you know, my struggle and my fight was just to stay conscious. I was fighting so as not to pass out. And I literally just remember just reaching up to the creator and reaching up to the heavens and just simply saying, you know what, I really want this. I just want to finish this marathon. And I remember at that point when the pain was so significant, I remember that's when you kind of start to find your peace. You know, you, you make a peace with your new body. You make your peace with your new life. You make your peace with your new circumstance. And you make your peace with our creator. And I think when you ask the question, you know, what advice, you know, do you give to families that have disabled children or people that are working with their own disabilities currently, I really do believe that you'll always have what you need when you need it. And I really do believe that if you choose to believe that you're part of something bigger or grander or more noble than yourself, if you choose to believe that you're part of a plan that you can't understand or even begin to appreciate, but that you know you're part of something significant, I really think that gives you a sense of purpose and a sense of mission and a sense of focus to always keep going. And literally, I, I just think what it comes down to is that, you know, we as disabled people, you know, these are the lives that we're given. You know, these are the lives that we're blessed with. And I just came to a certain conclusion in my life, having been born blind and then having to work my way back from a catastrophic injury in order to kind of fight my way back to learn how to walk again and to learn how to start moving forward to try to get back into athletics, you know, I really came to realize that, yes, it's unfair, yes, it's unjust, yes, it's not right, but I really came to realize something quite significant was that at a certain point you just have to come to realize that you can't spend your time trying to get over it. You just have to get on with it. And sometimes you just have to look at life like it's a great novel. You're going to have chapters of pain and struggle and strife, to ultimately find those chapters of hope, joy, and triumph. And I think the real advice that I would give is celebrate the life that we have. Celebrate the circumstances that we get to live, for it's good and for it's bad, but these are the lives that we have. 
these are the lives that we work with. And if we find that we're part of something bigger and grander, I think we can come to realize that if we do it one day and one step at a time, an easy life might not be always a good one. And sometimes if you have some struggle, hardship, and challenge, it gives you a sense of purpose, mission, and focus. But most importantly, the blessing that I think people have who have disabilities, that able-bodied people don't always get to experience is that when you have this kind of struggle, you're able to connect, relate, but most importantly, you're given the incredible blessing of, of empathy and the ability to connect with people. And quite often, there's no better way to live and no better way to experience life. My great thanks to Michigan Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein for taking the time from his incredibly busy schedule to talk to us for this episode. And as we always do at this point, a reminder that if you like this episode of Special Parents Confidential or any episode that we've done, please share our site with your friends, your family, and all your connections on social media. You can do this easily with the social media buttons on our website. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Add us on Google+, Tumblr, LinkedIn, Pinterest, StumbleUpon, Reddit, or any of the other social media sites you use. You can also sign up for our email service and have new posts and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox the moment they're available online. We're also available as a free download on iTunes, Stitcher, and Pod Directory. And if you have a moment, feel free to write a review about our podcast on any of those sites. Anything you can do to help spread the word about Special Parents Confidential will help us to be able to continue these podcasts. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.